Welcome to Building Tomorrow, a show about tech, innovation, and the future. I'm your host, Paul Matsko, and I wanted to return to a topic today that's been niggling at the back of my mind since we did our Silicon Valley trilogy of episodes. It's the question of the role of the military-industrial complex in the creation of our tech hubs and in propelling innovation. You see, this is, or really ought to be, a discomforting idea to folks like us who generally believe in free markets and limited government. Because on the surface, massive government spending on R&D, as happened during the Cold War, appears to have worked wonders. It's part of the birth of Silicon Valley. And if that was true then, it's natural to wonder if it could be true today. Perhaps we do need some kind of industrial policy where the government uses tax money to encourage technological innovation. It's a pretty basic challenge to the libertarian worldview. And you've probably heard variations on it, uh, like when the pundit cites government funding of the internet or NASA to support their argument for more government spending. So I decided to seek out a couple of experts on the subject of industrial policy and other government interventions in the economy. And I think you'll soon realize that the reality is much more complicated than the simple version you may already be familiar with. You'll hear from two interviewees today. Later on, I'll sit down with Cato's own favorite economist, the notorious PVD, Peter Van Dorn. But first, I wanted to talk with a scholar that could give us some historical perspective on the military's role in the birth of the semiconductor industry, which really is the core of Silicon Valley. Dr. Christophe Licuier is a professor of the history of science and technology at the Sorbonne and the author of Making Silicon Valley Innovation and the Growth of High Tech, published with MIT Press. He has written extensively about the history of the semiconductor industry. Welcome to the show, Professor. Thank you. Now, in one of your earlier books, Makers of the Microchip, you describe the challenges that microchip researchers faced uh, as falling into three categories, which you called silicon logic, user logic, and competitive logic. What are those in layman's terms? Yeah, so uh, silicon logic is really the opportunities and constraints offered by silicon, right? Mm-hmm. And these were, um, I mean, many great opportunities and many constraints. Uh, user logic is really um, the needs and demands of the users. So in that case, it would be, uh, in the case of microchips, it would be really the military at first and then commercial users. And then competitive logic is basically the co- competitive tensions between uh, firms, but also between countries in uh, certain industries or technologies. Let's um, flush that out a bit. So first, first user logic. Um that's what, you know, different users have different interests. And in the case of early Silicon Valley, it's the Cold War and the military has an interest in semiconductor research. How did making chips for the military change the direction of the research? And, and would that logic have been different? How might it have been different if the primary users had not been the military? Yeah, it's quite likely because the military was interested uh, a great deal in reliability and performance. And this led uh, the industry to move to silicon uh, before it was working on germanium. And then it really started working on speed and performance. So that I think it was essential for shaping the early days of semiconductor technology. So I didn't realize that there, there was another substrate they could have used. Germanium, you said, is that still... Um, what's the difference between a germanium-based substrate and a silicon-based one? So the, it's, they're, they're, I mean, they're both semiconductor materials, so they operate in the same way. But the big difference is uh, temperature. So silicon can operate at very high temperatures, but germanium doesn't. So as a result, the military was interested in silicon because it can uh, operate at much higher temperatures. Are there things that germania or that you know with a with different substrate that would have been possible? What, what are the advantages of the other approach? Is maybe what I'm asking. Of germanium, mm-hmm. I think the the the. I mean, the uh, advantage at that time was that germanium was much easier to use. And um, and actually, silicon was really a very hard material to work with in the uh, 50s and 60s. Th- those who have an interest in the history of Silicon Valley and semiconductor research are going to have heard of the Shockley-Fairchild split. And that infamous kind of falling out among semiconductor researchers um, I had never heard this the story in this detail until I read your book, but there were, there was a disagreement over whether they should pursue a research avenue over what's called a PNPN diode 
or whether they should go with diffused transistors. And apparently Fairchild thought the military would prefer transistors, even though the PNPN in your telling sounds like a superior technology, or at least a more complex technology, but with less immediate military application. Now, that's I just threw a lot of jargon out there. What is the difference in kind of basic layman's terms between those two technologies? And tell us more about the role that the military demand had in that debate. Okay, so there was yeah, was a substantial difference between a PNPN diode and a transistor. So the transistor is a discrete device, right? PNPN diode was a uh, what's, what was called at the time a functional device. So it was basically a device that operates like a circuit, but without having discrete uh, devices. That was a I mean one approach to miniaturization of uh, electronics. So the PNPN diode was something that was invented by William Shockley. Mm-hmm. Uh, he pushed it at uh, the Bell Labs, and then he pushed it in his own uh, company, Shockley Semiconductor Lab. Uh, the problem with this is that it was really hard to make. Uh, it was, I mean, it was very difficult to control the device and its manufacturing. And the group that left Shockley and moved to Fairchild felt that it was not a good product because it was not stable enough, and they felt that the demand was for transistors. And when they moved to Fairchild, they uh, started, working, started working on transistors. But what is interesting is, as far as I know, um, the debate at Shockley was not on the military versus commercial markets. It was really on PNPN diode versus transistors. When the group moved to uh, Fairchild, South Fairchild, they went out and uh, went, to talk, went to talk to customers, which in Southern California. And they discovered that at that time, that the military, the market was for really for military transistors. So uh, as far as I know, there was no uh, debate about the market itself at Shockley. The, it's only later that the group at Fairchild really realized that silicon transistors were for the military. So it's clear that military demand accelerated research into the promising new silicon substrate. And that led to very concrete breakthroughs that might have otherwise been delayed. But the military's particular interest for these devices also funneled researchers into specific research directions. It's not always clear that those directions were necessarily better than the alternatives from a pure innovation perspective, as with the PNPN versus transistor debate. But even if government money played an important role in silicon development, and there we can chalk up one for the industrial policy advocates, it's vital that we recognize that the U.S. adopted a much more hands-off R&D approach than other countries, which is to say that while it might have been government money, it was private researchers competing in the marketplace that actually did the innovation work. That's a very different model from other countries. Back to Christophe. Uh, on competitive logic, we actually interviewed Margaret O'Mara for this show, um, and she has talked about – she contrasted the U.S. decision to fund private research against uh, how other countries that were attempting to do research at the time with, like, you know, government-run research labs. Um, how important was the competition between uh, individual researchers and um, – uh, or I should say research centers and different, you know, semiconductor corporations in promoting the pace of semiconductor innovation? Yeah, so the, the, I mean, the competition was intense, uh, clearly, among uh, like firms that were making uh, devices mostly for the military. And the, uh, there was very strong competitive tension between uh, Fairchild Semiconductor and Texas Instruments, that were the two leading firms in microchips in the early days. And it's clear that this uh, competition between TI and Fairchild accelerated the development of the technology. Omara makes that compare that tacit comparison to how the U.S. set up its kind of government funding of research of of private corporations and private research labs. Um, How was, for example, was France conducting R&D differently at the same time period or or another country that you're familiar with? Yeah, so I think think she has a point, uh, namely that this decision was made at the beginning of World War II in the U.S. to um, contract out research to universities and companies, right? Uh, and that was something new uh, that no other uh, country in Europe did well during World War II, as far as I know. Um, and after that, the Americans stayed in that mode, if you will, and uh, and Europeans stayed in the old mode, which was the arsenal mode, right? I mean, things are done inside 
within the government. The U.S. avoided making the mistake of trying to centralize industrial policy in government-run research labs. It's been reaping the rewards ever since. But there are other downsides to even the more limited role of government funding in the U.S. model. Working on government contracts could be a frustrating, bureaucratic nightmare at times. It also meant tying up a limited supply of researchers on projects that interested the military. That created a bottleneck that discouraged innovation in consumer-facing products. After all, close to 100% of integrated circuits went to the military up until the early 1960s, leaving consumer electronics dependent on vacuum tube and germanium-based tech later than might have otherwise been true. Back to Professor Lecuyer. I'm also curious on the kind of supply of of you know, of genius side. Was there a bottleneck among engineers and researchers with expertise in semiconductors? I mean, were there more projects available than there were people to staff them? Yeah, so there was a clearly a very large demand for people who could do anything with semiconductors um, in the late 50s and 1960s, and it's quite likely that uh, companies were looking for engineer, I mean, engineers for for, uh, for jobs and they couldn't find them. So what is interesting to note is that uh, the more dynamic companies, such as Fairchild in Silicon Valley, were basically organizing raids. And they were uh, basically raiding the companies based in Boston or in Texas and bringing their engineers back to Silicon Valley. <laughs> That's great. I mean, so it's a good time to be a, to be a semiconductor researcher because I'm sure yeah. you know, salaries are going up and yeah. Now that we're on kind of on the human side of, of the equation, what what are the very kind of basic advantages of going with Pentagon contracts uh, for semiconductors um, as opposed to selling to non-military buyers? What 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 we do first? What are the advantages? So I mean, you have to think also about uh, I mean, think of the timing. So the, the the answer is going to be different in different periods. So um, in the early days of Fairchild, so late fifties, early sixties. The military was basically the only market. It's either the military itself or military contractors. They were basically the only market for silicon-based uh, transistors, diodes, and uh, microchips. And then things changed, uh, starting in 62, 63, I mean, around that time, maybe earlier. Why? Because the military started to change its procurement policies. And it made sending devices to the military much less interesting. Hmm. What does that mean? What, how did they change their procurement system? So they change it in two ways. First of all, they make major cuts in procurement. So they were buying less than a few uh, microchips and transistors, but mostly transistors and little, and little mostly microchips. And then they also changed the, the rules. They essentially ask all the firms to give them access to the accounting books. So the military wanted to know essentially how much, how much profits the firms were making on military contracts in order to negotiate the prices down. Uh. And uh, this was something that was really not well seen in Silicon Valley for good reasons, right? Yeah. Many firms decided that the military was really too risky to work with, and then they tried to move into commercial markets. Yeah, there's often a revolving door between the industry and the procurement process and the government. And so if you open your books to the to the Pentagon, all your competitors are going to see your books as well, potentially. I mean, leaks and yeah, absolutely. all yeah. that yeah, It's really a bad thing to do, yeah. Now, I also, in your book, you also mentioned that the, there were some um, intellectual property uh, problems as well uh, as the bookkeeping. What, what is that? Yeah, so at the same time, the military wanted to get access to intellectual property. And in some cases, they would essentially take the devices from, the, from companies and uh, ask other companies to produce these devices for them. Mm. So one company's done all this research into a you know a new way of constructing a transistor, and the military is now going to take it and let someone else do the very profitable production line work. Is that? Yeah, absolutely. So they're basically, I mean, moving the thing away from the creator of it and give it to somebody else mm. to produce it. So that this happened uh, a lot for microwave tubes and a bit for transistors as well. So as uh, military purchase declines in the 60s, uh, you now have all these companies that have excess capacity for producing and, well, I suppose researching as well in the, in the area. What industries pick up that slack? Like where are we seeing those semiconductors go? Yeah, so, so actually what happened is that the uh, companies such as Fairchild essentially created new markets for their products and they targeted uh, two industries. 
consumer electronics and the automotive industry in the um, early to mid-1960s. They essentially created the market and they, um, uh, they, would, they did so by lowering the prices right, of their products, which meant lowering the cost of manufacturing. But also, they were actually very creative and they uh, designed uh, devices like TVs, for instance, right, um, around their uh, transistors or microchips. And then they would go to see the manufacturers of this t- of, uh, in, the, uh, in the TV industry and show them their designs. And this enabled them essentially to create markets because the designs that were uh, engineered at Fairchild were adopted then by these TV companies. And the these new monitors, I mean, what would a, an ordinary consumer have noticed is the difference between the old and the new? Like what difference does that make with quality of TV or even of car? Uh, in the case of cars, I think it enabled... Uh, uh, the, the introduction of more electronics, if, if you will, inside the cars, because the cars need, uh, I mean, uh, are characterized by very high temperatures, right? So they, they need silicon, so you can do a lot of electronics with silicon in cars that you would be able to germane, with, with germanium. And uh, I think in the case of uh, TV monitors, it helped with uh, the miniaturization of the electronics part of it. Robert Noyce was one of the founding fathers of the semiconductor industry, and he once said, quote, Government funding of R&D has a deadening effect upon the incentives of the people. They know that their work is for the government and that it is supported by government dollars and that there is a lot of waste. This is not the way to get creative, innovative work done. The best way to get something done is to have enough confidence in yourself and your men to do it yourselves, end quote. He also complained about what he called, quote, Bullshit, make waste, make work, and lack of incentive in government contracting. I asked Professor Lequier if Noyce's complaint was common at the time. Uh, that's an interesting question. In my sense, is that they were fairly, it was fairly rare at that time. Uh, but the, what is interesting to note is that Noyce was clearly not interested in getting research and development contracts for the military. Mm-hmm. Actually, Fairchild almost uh, got no contract from them, I mean, with a few exceptions. But he was interested in getting manufacturing contracts from the military, right? So that's a big difference. So the, when you get a manufacturing contract, basically you design a device and sell it to the military, military contractors, but then you rely on government money, essentially. But if you get a research development contract, you're essentially tying your expertise and your competency to perceived needs of the military. Fairchild was very much interested in military contracts in military markets, but it really defined the needs, if you will, of the military. And then it's selling um, its devices to the military according to what Fairchild expected the, the need of the military to be. Right? This is very different from getting trying to get a contract on military who do research where the military tells you what research to do. And in that case, the military is really con- controlling your engineering and your technical competency and directs it towards its own perceived needs, if you will. So there's a lot more freedom uh, on the you know manufacturing end rather than on the research end where there, it's much more directed. We want you to do this very specifically. And then for a researcher like Noyce, that's frustrating, that's limiting. Yes, that's limiting. But also, uh, I think Noyce was a, a very competent uh, man. And he, he understood that the real needs of the military may not be the needs that the, the military perceived about itself. Oh, right? okay. Interesting. Yeah. The, the military at that time was giving lots of contracts for uh, radio frequency transistors or high power transistors. And it turned out that there was no big markets for these types of products. I mean, if you're a, you know, if you're a, a functionary in the Pentagon, you don't have the expertise of these, of the folks actually on the research and manufacturing end. So you think you know what you want when the experts saying no, you really want this is a better approach. This will be better for you in the long run, but there's a disconnect there, I suppose. So the the way I would see, I would see this is the military uh, uh, identified its needs. So there they were clearly needs for high power uh, uh, silicon transistors and radio frequency transistors, right? But they were they also identify needs for logic devices. But the thing is that um, Fairchild focused on where the the larger the volume was. And the volume was on uh, uh, in logic devices, not in uh, RF or high-power devices. Very interesting. Now, in the intro to making Silicon Valley, you argue that the relationship of Silicon Valley to the military-industrial complex is not a simple story. 
And there are, I think, several different ways folks approach that story um, in a simplistic fashion. Uh, what are some of the different ways that you see, you know, kind of commonly being spread uh, today? To me, um, there's often a confusion between uh, R&D contracts and manufacturing contracts, right? Um, I think it's important to make that distinction that the military had basically a, an impact in two different ways. One by was giving R&D contracts to companies to develop uh, technologies that they were interested in. And then the other ways in which the, the military was impacting the industry was with manufacturing contracts. And some companies decided, that, uh, as we talked about for Fairchild, decided not to go for military contract, R&D contracts, but for manufacturing contracts. I think it's a big difference. This distinction that Professor Lequier makes between what it was like to work for the government as a researcher versus as a manufacturer gets to a more general observation about the nature of industrial policy. In short, the more strings attached to a government grant, or the more specific the request from a Pentagon contract, the less likely it was to have beneficial outcomes. Researchers often felt constrained by government requirements and the roving eyes of politicians always looking for a new ribbon to cut or constituency to please. And this appears to hold true even outside of semiconductors in the formal tech industry. Economists have tried to assess when industrial policy succeeds and when it fails and why. It really is a mixed bag. So I've asked Peter Van Doren, uh, the editor of Regulation Magazine here at Cato, to explain what the relevant literature says. It's just a word for throwing money at stuff. <laughs> there I mean, you go. That's are. your answer. <laughs> industrial policy refers to either appropriations or tax breaks in the tax code, either credits or deductions, that are directed not at a general uh, thing like R&D or love or the weather or something, but rather this particular industry defined as the government, the Department of Commerce has what are called SIC codes, standard industrial codes. So every segment of the U.S. economy for census purposes has a six-digit number. And so in the, in the law, it says if you are an industry that does fits in these codes, you'll get so much from the appropriations bill or or you'll get this break on your corporate income taxes if you spend it on, and then they usually fill in the blank by, you know, capital and equipment and this and that, and they define like the depreciation of this, or, you know, they so basically, as we talked off the year, it's Congress throws money through the tax code or through appropriations at various particular sectors or industries in the economy, hoping that good stuff happens as a result of throwing money at this particular sector. So it's tweaking those formulas, right? There's a form, essentially, fill in this blank with whatever you know uh, economic sector ID number. And when they spend money on fill-in-blank category, they get fill-in-blank Then the government pays for money. It. Yeah. yeah. Credit or Exactly. Or yeah. It's like... It's like buying a dishwasher and getting the, <laughs> the Visa card back from Bosch or whatever. Yeah, yeah. When you put it that way, it's it's uh, kind of it's less romantic than calling it industrial. It is. Policy. It does yeah. right. It's money. We're throwing money <laughs> at money things, okay. the behavior of particular sectors, buying or employing particular inputs. And this has a long history. I mean, we, we've done a lot of industrial policy. During the Cold War, as we've heard from our recent interview with Dr. Kie, but um, it's older than that, right? In my reading, in my preparation for this interview, I came across an anecdote that was new to me. And uh, I'm always, I mean, that's why I keep telling people I've read a lot, but there's always more to learn. And it was the following. In 1836, Congress appropriated $30,000, and I haven't done the... Inflation calculation. Yeah, that's big to, money. That's big money in yeah, today's yeah. dollars, I suspect. Um, to subsidize the first telegraph line from Washington, D.C. to Baltimore. And so industrial policy, i.e. throwing money at a particular thing because it's an invention and it looks like it's going to change society, goes, it goes back a long way in, in U.S. political and economic history. And thus we shouldn't think of industrial policy as something named uh, in the 70s and 80s to worry about, quote, the rise of Japan and the fall of the United States. Uh, I mean, it goes the, back a long, long, long. 
That is kind of the context when the term becomes popular, though, yes. right? Yeah. Yes. The decline of the U.S. manufacturing sector, or I shouldn't say the decline of the sector, because the sector actually, in terms of production, is doing just fine. The number of people Output. employed. Yeah, because of productivity gains, it takes many, many fewer people to make widgets, and thus, that's called a problem. Even though, from our point of view, it's actually a success. So. It's funny that we still use the term industrial policy because it is that mindset. It's like a you know seventies decline. The steel mills are offshoring. That textile mills are leaving. Right. It's an industrial factory manufacturing mindset. Um, when the term is much more broad than that. I mean, it can be any sector of the economy, right? Not, Technically, but yeah. we don't – no one that I know of, there aren't bills in Congress to throw money at shopping malls or to prevent their <laughs> decline. I mean, we, even though three-quarters of U.S. GDP is service sector, we don't tend to think of that as industrial <laughs> and we don't – there doesn't seem to be a whole – although, I mean, I suppose – localities, state and local governments are throwing money at Amazon, right, to locate. Remember, at second headquarters, there was a an arms race, which Northern Virginia won to. So there is state and local competition over parts of this so-called service economy. But I don't, nothing comes to mind about national, a national effort to, yeah. you know, make restaurants more efficient, um, <laughs> even though restaurants I mean, employment growth is huge in the service. Anyway, we, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's but it's an odd. We use it in a very specific sense, which, which is yeah, throwing money at factories where people deal with noise and heat and, <laughs> and things, right? And yeah, yeah. things go boom, and and products come out. Yeah, there's there's a there's a kind of a romanticism and nostalgia, I think, behind it too, which is once upon a time from the in the 1930s, grandpa. Or dad worked in a in a factory, and they could work forty hours in a union job and make a middle class living. Yes. And, and it's very yes. much centered around the Absolutely. vision of Detroit auto factories, and that's yes. lingered. That's what we think of when we think of industrial policy often: mines, autos, steel. I mean, the odd thing is, it just if we romanticize the past about my goodness, I mean, injuries and deaths, mortality. Right? People died in those. I mean. Yes, the wages were high, but that came be because of our competitors have been bombed in World War II and we were it. And then unions restricted entry and shared the rents with workers. So yeah. um, it it was it it it. Uh, but it was smoky, dirty, um, and productivity was low. I mean, five hundred thousand people were employed in coal mining. In you know nineteen fifty something, and now we have thirty thousand. And wow, do we really want to go back to have four hundred and seventy thousand more people in underground mines being killed in coal mines? But there's nostalgia. Yes, there's cultural nostalgia. But among certain folks, the the geographic regions in which coal and steel were um, were foremost. If you go to those towns, if you go to Youngstown, Ohio, it's certainly not very pretty and things aren't happening there. I mean, that's true. Or Lordstown, Ohio, where the, the plant closed. The GM and plant. Right. You have whole town communities built around factories. They, they were not economically diversified. Yeah. Yeah. They've struggled since. Um, so industrial policy, very old, and complaints about industrial policy are very old. I mean, this is even before there were libertarians. People were complaining about government spending on internal improvements in the 19th century. and but what This are, goes way back. Yeah. yeah. I mean, Federalists, Anti-Federalists fussing over whether something called the markets and private entrepreneurs and ingenuity can do everything or whether the government needs to, ought to, can, should, whatever verb you want, play a role in this process. And so I'm, we're going through the latest iteration of, of this struggle. And like the anti-federalists back in the day, there are many today, including most libertarians, who are critical of industrial policy. I asked Peter what the most common objections are. Well, first are the the philosophical coming from libertarians and market-oriented folks, which is they'll cite Hayek and they'll say <clears throat> that mar the life is so complicated that we don't have enough knowledge to actually pick out winners 
ex-ante from losers, things like that. So we have general complaints, but those are constant. They're not about any specific program. They just say um, you can't, no one has enough knowledge to figure out what to throw money at in particular. Instead, we need profits plus market entrepreneurs uh, making their own guesses with the right incentives, i.e. it's their money at stake as opposed to other people's money, that those incentives weed out really stupid ideas, right? Whereas if it's taxpayer funded, ooh, it's other pe- OPM, it's other people's money. And it's something that constituents don't pay for particularly. Instead, we all pay for it in general. And then it's located in a particular place. So there's a often a geographic coalition associated with so-called um, applied R&D spending. And thus it's the book. I mean, there's a a book I brought, which we'll we'll tell our audience about, a Brookings book from the early 90s. It's one of the last and only discussions of all of this. The title of the book is The Technology Pork Barrel. It's just like dams and roads. And so send money to boost this sector. And the sector doesn't isn't located all over the U.S. It's located in particular places at particular times. And that creates the coalition to spend, to save it or boost it. Besides having to deal with the limited attention spans of politicians and voters, industrial policy also has to contend with politicians' bias towards discrete projects with short-term benefits, the kind that they can point to at the next election. Industrial policy, in other words, favors specific earmarks with concrete, measurable outcomes over broad, general research grants. However, specific earmarks have a particularly terrible track record. So this Brookings book has, it's by two economists and they discuss focused government um, technology efforts and then they talk about it in general and then they have some case studies about failure. And So this is spending on specific programs, not like a general tax credit correct. for R&D. The four programs of that I could talk, that they talk about are the supersonic transport. This was an effort to the, the French had the Concorde and we needed our own by golly. So we had a supersonic transport program, uh, the development of the space shuttle, right? A, a cheap, which turned out not to be cheap, right? It's something, a reusable launch vehicle to take stuff back and forth from up there in the space station and back down to Earth. Uh, three is the breeder reactor. Um, like nuclear reactor. A nuclear, yeah. th- this was the Clinch River breeder reactor, and it was... Um, an R&D effort focused on a, 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 a type of nuclear reactor which would produce more fuel than it used. And this was when we were going to go all nuke and we were going to solve the oil crisis. And we weren't going to be dependent. We were, we were very worried about not having enough uranium in the U.S. And we were against trade and all. Because you know, a lot of the uranium's in like Africa and Central Africa and other it, places. Other places. Yeah, and yeah. then, so this would make, uh, a, an, as a result of nuclear reactions in civilian nuclear reactors, instead of having, well, you'd have waste, but you'd also would make plutonium. And then the plutonium would be used in future of electricity production in a reactor. And so anyway, this was the, it looked, right, it kind of take a loaf of bread and make five loaves of bread. I mean, it's magic. So there was that research effort. And then finally, again, from the energy crisis, uh, the SINFUEL program to convert coal into uh, gas and liquids, right? Mm -hmm. To make gasoline and natural gas out of coal. Under high pressure and temperature and engineers, um, you can do all these things. And it turns out that we dropped, we spent a lot of money on that and it never went anywhere. So all four of these, well, we spent large sums of money on. So how does that look? That's that's uh, individual companies are competing for grants from... Well, they were federal R&D efforts. Uh, here, they weren't... Uh, there really weren't existing companies building these things. Instead, it was companies that might build these things were then given money to research and develop yeah. prototypes and et cetera, et cetera, which didn't happen. Well, we did end up with a space shuttle. So that one yes. seems like that the most successful of the four. 
But it turned. It was so expensive. We turned out not to be able to really. It wasn't cost effective. I mean, it it did succeed, but the tiles, right? That the that whole effort to keep it from boiling up as it re-entered the atmosphere. That was that didn't. That was very costly. Um, so, ironically, now we're with the Elon Musk. We're doing the SpaceX effort, which is a private attempt to create a reusable rocket, right, to launch and then recover. And um, it looks like that it may work out in a way that the space shuttle uh, did not. Hmm. So with these four attempts at specific targeted, you know, government um, industrial policy spending on these projects that were fantastically expensive um, and didn't lead, didn't produce the results that were hoped for, um, it, it, why does that fail to function? Like, what's the what's the mechanism by which it doesn't work? The conclusion of the book was that it's it's that the political coalition for particular uh, uh, industrial policy efforts is is very um, it's a political coalition, and therefore some problem catches the nation's concern. And it's the decline of the Rust Belt or something like that, or we've got to catch up with. The Russians, or some, you know, some cause catches political imagination, and then becomes, in politicians' minds, central to re-election efforts. For whatever reason, we've got to solve this problem, and turns out R and D takes a much longer time to work things through. And the book basically says it's not that the federal government is incapable of leading an R and D effort. You can hire scientists and you can have them work. I mean, it, the incentive problem I talked about earlier is missing. I, it is other people's money. But you can hire the same smart engineers and whatnot and fund them and pay them and they'll work on things. It's not that they're they're shirking. It's just that congressional interest wanes and then the funding goes away because they they become troubled by what's – I mean, because they're hiccups. These things always don't always work well. There's – Failure. I mean, that happens in the private sector too, but um, those happen on the private side and don't get much congressional attention and, and newspaper attention. But when it's political and you're sending money to something and there are hiccups, then, oh, hmm, why are we spending all this money? And, ooh, the problem we were worried about when we started this program isn't today's problem. That was yesterday's problem. Let's go on to something else. And so the the message of the book is... Not a long run version of what a famous political scientist Brookings, Anthony Downs, called the issue attention cycle, which was if you look at newspapers, whatever the problem was in the New York Times eight months ago, isn't what the, we're talking about now. Yeah. And if you're gutsy enough, you can w- ride out these political issue attention cycles. Uh, for instance, Governor Northam in 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 uh, Virginia, in, right? I mean, he was. Appeared in a, a medical school yearbook with with blackface and all. I mean, it looked like oh my god, this guy can't possibly last. And well, he just kind of hunkered down and waited. And the Anthony Downs issue attention cycle is now focused on something else, and he's still there. All right, a long run version of that is is applied R and D, where an effort will go for five or six or seven years, but it needs thirty years maybe, and the interest declines and uh that makes sense yeah well and the funding the, goes away the political coalition changes you might not have the critical mass of i don't know say there's a combination of local congressmen who their district would benefit a lot from spending on you know having one of these research centers or right but maybe, you need some other parts of the other parts right. and the coalition something happens and, right and it intercepts i can also imagine an issue where you know research isn't always predictable um and Private efforts, you know, it, it, the startup culture is well known for the pivot. You're doing research along one avenue, and it's not leading to the results you expected. And so you, but you, you produce some results that that point in another direction, right? And so you pivot the direction of the company and change the product sometimes radically. But a congressional appropriations process, they don't pivot. They don't pivot. <laughs> it's like yeah. no, we. We basically give you 2% more than we gave you last year and you write out forms and you tell us yeah. how everything's wonderful and you did what you did with the money. And then, oh, what do you mean 
this is a total dead end and we need to do this. Well, no, that would be a different committee. And you see, I mean, <laughs> right, yeah, yeah, right, yeah. right. They're just not capable. They're not flexible in that same way. Um, we have a pretty good track record from um, you know Cohen and Noel and, and, and their contributors that these partic- that particular spending on specific projects um, falls afoul of the attention cycle, falls afoul of you know it runs into problems. It tends to end up wasting a lot of money on average, and that matters. I mean, it would matter less, I suppose, if that money only supplemented private research. But isn't there a literature on whether it, it actually – whether it complements or supplements or whether it substitutes, substitutes. for? Yes. And explain that for us. Why is that a particular problem? Well, the um, – just for the reasons you said, which is is uh, the economists have tried to figure out whether um, because of the public good nature of knowledge and the um, – inability of the patent system to totally privatize the spillover benefits of R&D. Is it the case that, in effect, public sector spending is a necessary complement to private efforts? Because if you don't have public spending, then the private effort will be insufficient because you can't restrict the benefits of R&D to those who pay for it. There's spillover benefits. People know that. And who wants to put all their money into something, only have, in effect, other people use the knowledge and make money off of it? Again, the patent system is an attempt to privatize the benefits of R&D so that for a while you have monopoly rights to the research and the result. But but it's an imperfect effort. And so in the economics literature, there's this question, which is if the feds throw money at something um, – does private sector activity go down or, or, or go up? And how does that relationship work? Um, so I'll quote here from in the Journal of Economic Perspectives, the fall 2019 issue, very recent, um, had a, a, a very nice article on what economists know about R&D, mm-hmm. both in general and this, not so much on the applied side, which is the older Brookings book, but on the on a, a more general if we throw money at scientists, what happens? Um, so the stylized fact I, I should have known but did not was that in this article, from 1953 to 2015, R&D in the United States spending went up from 1.3% of GDP to 27 But during that time period, the federal role fell dramatically and the private role rose. So we drifted from... Um, Massive post-World War II, MIT, Vannevar Bush, military-industrial complex kind of R&D federal effort to much lower defense spending as a percent of GDP um, and defense R&D as a percent of GDP. And then the private sector rose quite a bit. And um, so it it seems like there at least um, federal R&D spending is not a necessary. I mean, it, it's not that R&D fell off the cliff because the federal role dropped dramatically. The private sector picked up their role, but the composition is different. I mean, again, we're going away from a lot of nuclear and weapons and armament type R&D to uh, pharma R&D and health and and uh, electronics and, and the Silicon Valley kind of stuff. Yeah. Which, I mean, I suppose it depends on one's political and ideological priors. I tend to prefer the ones yes, that aren't yeah. being used to kill yeah, other yeah, people. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know. Yeah. The irony is how liberal states that are anti-war have a high defense R&D spending. Hmm. California, Massachusetts, and Connecticut have a lot of defense R&D, and yet the Joe Lieberman was senator from Connecticut for, and it wasn't accidental. He protected electric boat and Sikorsky helicopter and United Technologies and the technology pork barrel that went their way. So the literature is pretty clear that general research is preferable to specific earmarks. But even with general R&D spending, the results are still mixed. I have results both for and against. Okay, uh, fun. Yeah, <laughs> um, take this, your pick. Economists are into research designs that attempt to mimic what we have in science, i.e. experiments. And 
um, we look for unexpected, what are called discontinuities in life so that I, we can say plausibly that if you're on one side of this discontinuity or the other, it's like random assignment in a, in a clinical trial. And thus, we can look at outcomes from different discontinuity results and say, oh, this is sort of like randomly assigning R&D money this way versus that way and seeing what happens. So one of the literature articles I'll talk about is um, take all the finalists for NIH grants, the National Institute of Health, and then among the finalists, some win and some don't. Then follow their research career subsequent to that decision. How much of a difference does the NIH grant make? And the answer is one additional, for those who win, they produce one additional research literature paper over the next five years. And every $10 million of additional NIH money produces about two to three patents over the next five years. And so this article didn't do a cost-benefit analysis about whether that was a good, but at least there was some evidence that the public sector NIH grants um, did make a difference for uh, outcomes. But I've got another <laughs> NIH study that comes to a, the opposite conclusion. And this involved uh, the decision of President Bush administration to uh, stop stem cell research funding from the federal government over uh, right to life uh, concerns. So we have and another, it, yeah, there's a, you know. An it, exogenous, I mean, a presum well, plausibly exogenous shock. So no more federal money for stem cell research. Well, if you our listeners remember that was a big deal. I mean, the it was like, a, oh my goodness, we're not going to discover a cure X, Y, Z, and Q, which would save a gazillion lives and cure these diseases. The scientific community was apoplectic. Um, oh, okay, so the there's a, the literature sort of studied. Well, what happened to stem cell research? The answer was there was no change in research output, and the scholars left publicly funded academia, and they went to industry. So here we find, instead of the NIH result that I talked about earlier, which is it looks like the public sector funding was a complement, not a substitute here, looks like the private sector could pick up the ball. Um, there were enough well, uh, well, very, very rich philanthropists, pick, because this was such a public thing, lots of private philanthropic money picked up the ball. So it's not clear you can generalize this to more under the radar uh, federal versus private R&D. But again, this was the world didn't end. Stem cell research didn't end. The private sector picked up the ball. And so you could argue that we don't need federally funded medical research in this area because it, it doesn't appear to be necessary. Mm. So if there are some big principles, I think, out of this conversation... Um, all things being equal, if you're going to have industrial policy, if, you're, if the government's going to throw money at things, it's better they throw it at general scientific research, broad, kind of broad, unmarked un spending. Not industrial policy. Just, yeah, just broad tax credits for R&D. Yeah, something like that. And that, that uh, again, in the short run... May increase salaries, may not increase Q, but if it's if it's not short term, right? Some there's a problem if you have a, a tax credit for anything or an appropriation for anything where there's great uncertainty about whether it's going to continue. So you need a kind of thirty year. We're going to throw money at this for a long time. Yeah. If it's really basic R and D, it's going to take that long. Um, take fusion research, for example, right? Thermo creating a limitless supply of energy that mimics what happens on the sun or any star, the, the uh, fusion. I mean, I've, there's a project at Princeton, there's a project in Europe, and they've gone through gluts and, and, and busts when it comes to funding, and we're still not it's going to take a long time. And so even on, on the basic side, the ability of the p public sector to commit to just throwing money at this for a very long period of time and seeing what happens, that's very difficult. But if it's going to do something, it should do that, not a particular publicized effort to bring out some particular technology in, in five years or six years or seven to solve 
some current uh, crisis. And the one part of the federal government that seems that Congress loves is NIH. And they just medical throwing money at disease, basic science that has maybe a disease uh, cure payoff. The administration often wants to zero that out. Trump wants to lower the NIH budget. Congress loves NIH. And that, uh, like I said, I've got evidence that it actually is useful and then some evidence that it maybe it's not. But why that is? Why health in particular? Why that? You know, it's interesting. The politics of health research just don't fall. I mean, the the negative Brookings, you know, the case studies of, but throwing money at NIH, the Congress... Well, they're not going to cut it now that we have the coronavirus scare. Probably not. Probably safe for the next budget. Although trying to create a vaccine uh, under deadline, I'm not. I worry about. uh, Although I hear Gilead has apparently there's something in the pipeline, and maybe they're going to rush the trials, and then Mm. okay. I'm sure the response of government health agencies like the CDC to the coronavirus epidemic will be the subject of future papers like those Peter has referenced today. But I hope that today's episode gave you a sense of just how complicated the story of government financing of innovation is. Next time you hear a simplistic version of the industrial policy pitch, you'll know that you're being sold a bill of goods. In reality, industrial policy is a mixed bag, though there are some broad applications we can make. For example, if the government does do industrial policy, it should fight its natural instincts and go with general grants over specific earmarks. We should also expect that process to kind of corrupt over time, leading to waste and distortions. We should question whether the innovation produced truly serves our interests as consumers, or if it's about the interests of the military or other government agencies. Until next time, be well. Thanks for listening. If you enjoy Building Tomorrow, please subscribe to us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. If you'd like to learn more about libertarianism, find us on the web at www.libertarianism.org.